1: Did you know that the number zero is younger than all the other numbers? There are many origin stories for who invented zero, but mathematicians all agree that it's a very weird number. Anything multiplied by zero becomes zero. And you don't want to know what happens if you try to divide by zero. Talking of multiplication, you probably know that 5 times 2 equals 10. But what happens when you multiply shapes together? What's a circle multiplied by a line? And can you divide shapes too? Now these questions might seem a little bit out there. They probably sound a bit naive in fact. But our guest today argues that asking these types of questions can actually lead to a deeper understanding of some of the most profound and fascinating concepts that underpin modern mathematics.
0: I don't sit here doing it because I think I'm going to help someone fly a plane or I'm going to specifically help someone do something. I do think it's useful in the end, but the reason I do research is because it's absolutely gorgeous and glorious and joyful and satisfying.
1: According to our guest, maths has been unfairly maligned as being too difficult or too remote from real life. Maths is, in fact, all about fun and play.
0: I have zero elephants in my house and they are all purple. All zero of them are purple. But could you not also say,
1: there's no elephants in my house, none of them are... Oh yes, it makes sense, does make <laughs> sense. Okay, that, I, I'm, I'm bamboozled now. This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, how to learn to love maths. On the show today is Eugenia Cheng. She's a mathematician, musician, and author who wants to reframe people's relationships with things like numbers, formulae, and algebra. She's just published a book called Is Maths Real, which delves into all of the weird and wonderful things that mathematics can do. Eugenia, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Now, Let's start with the place that a lot of people find themselves in when they first think about mathematics, when if they're not mathematicians or using maths in their daily lives, they might not like it. They might not want to think about it. And they probably, you know, get scared off even talking about it and maybe listening to podcasts like this even. So can you just give me an outline? Why should we care about it? Why should people continue listening?
0: So I don't like the word should, actually. I don't want to tell anyone they should do anything. What I want to do is offer this as something that can help everyone and that can be different from what many people have experienced as school maths. Because I really sympathise with everyone who's been put off it by school maths. Unfortunately, school maths has so much that's just leading towards really boring standardized tests. And it's not the fault of the teachers at all. It's the fault of the entire system that just keeps testing really boring things. And so I understand why people have been put off, but it makes me sad because there's so much more to it than that. And I would just like to show everyone it to see if that makes them feel differently about it. I'm not going to tell anyone they should do it or they should like it. I just want to offer this.
1: Now you've dedicated the book To all of the people that have been, quote, made to feel bad by maths, which is a nice way of including a lot of people. What Did you realize at some point in your childhood, as you had these thoughts about mathematics that you just articulated, did you realize that not everyone else did? And, you know,
0: how did that make you feel? Yes, I did realize that because I did get celebrated a lot for being good at maths when I was young. I could see that other people were really feeling bad about it. And unfortunately, I could see them getting upset and feeling humiliated in class. And I wanted to help them. And so I always wanted to try and explain things to my friends. And quite as far back as I can remember, I enjoyed trying to and often being able to help my friends understand things that they previously couldn't understand. And this has really driven my vocation in education.
1: Your friends must have loved you for having uh, someone who, don't know. who could just <laughs> don't explain all the maths to them all the time. <laughs> I would have loved someone to do that to me at school. Have a nice resource <laughs> that isn't the teacher.
0: <laughs> well, we should all help each other. And unfortunately, maths and education in general are often too much about competing, where we praise the people who do best and come top. And I would love to see it so that we praise people who help each other more rather than trying to get people to come top, which kind of encourages them to make other people do work.
1: Us. I'm curious to know, you know, obviously as a child, you were interested in mathematics and you were good at it. But how did that develop into where you are today, into a career in mathematics as a, an academic mathematician, basically? So, you know, I love mathematics too when I was young and I used some of it in my university career and everything. But I didn't become a mathematician because I'm, I remember thinking at some point, this is just too abstract.
0: I always loved the abstract world, you see. I was just waiting for it to happen because the stuff that was at school seemed too limiting to me. And honestly, I wanted to be a mathematician ever since I was very small. I do feel like, as a research mathematician anyway... I get to just play all the time in my head because maths is about playing around with ideas and seeing what you can come up with. And I've said sometimes before that it feels like playing around with Lego. It's just that the Lego is abstract Lego inside my head, which has the benefit that, First of all, you can do it anywhere. You can do it while you're walking up the street, sitting at home, waiting for a bus, sitting on a train that's delayed. Plus, you don't have to keep buying more pieces because as long as you have the imagination to dream up more pieces, you can always have more pieces. Now, I'm not sure that people listening to
1: this will include in the same sentence the words mathematics and play, but by the end of this podcast, I'm hoping that they will. So can you just define, first of all, what do you mean when you say play? Is it as fun as it sounds? It's fun to me. That's always one of those answers, isn't it? It's fun to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, 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 different things are fun to different people, right? I mean, jumping out of planes is fun to some people. It's not fun to me at all. But the thing that makes me sad is that when you start doing maths, maybe in kindergarten and year one, it's quite playful, right? You build things, you draw pictures, and you're basically playing around to see if you can get your head around the concept of number. And then somehow maths becomes all about trying to get the right answer and being judged. And by the time people get to secondary school and then they get to university, nobody's jumping up and down with excitement. And I wish we could preserve that for longer because that's more like what research maths is. And most people, of course, will never be a PhD student in maths. And so they'll never get to see that. And I would like to show it to them. Uh, Do you think then, just building on that idea of
1: these five-year-olds being very excited about maths problems, could we think about maths as a hobby? Something that you could just play with and get good at even if you're not going to become a professional at it.
0: Yes. And I think there are some people who do recreational maths or who like reading maths in their spare time. And I don't necessarily want to turn everybody into that. And I've been thinking about this because I've recently taken up tennis again. And I thought I was really bad at it, just like people think they're really bad at maths. And it's because I was put off it at school, just like people are put off maths at school. But I realised I still enjoy it, even though I'm not very good at it. The thing about sport is that people enjoy taking part in it, even if they're not good at it. But they also really enjoy just watching it, because you don't actually have to take part in it in order to appreciate it in some way. And so I'm not saying that everyone needs to become a recreational mathematician who does maths as a hobby. But I think being able to just see maths and appreciate the fact that other people have done it or appreciate the arguments that they've made or appreciate what they've achieved is something that I think would be a beautiful thing for everyone and also for society.
1: Now, your most recent book called Is Maths Real? question mark And of course, it's one of those questions that I think probably gets people either concerned or thinking very carefully, uh, because, you know, it's not something they necessarily question in any way, whether they like it or not. So, you know, I'd like to know what you mean by that question. Why would you question the reality of maths? I mean, it's all around us. It's useful every day. We can't do science without it. Why on earth would you question it?
0: The subtitle of the book is How Simple Questions Lead Us to Mathematics' Deepest Truths. So I would like to stress that it's not a whole book about whether or not maths is real. It's a book about why there are questions that are very simple to pose, but very, very difficult to answer. And in a way, that's a very terrifying aspect of maths. But to me, it's one of the most powerful and fantastic aspects of maths that small children can ask a naive sounding question that actually leads to very deep thoughts. And whether or not maths is real is a difficult question. But I don't think is maths real is quite the right question, or at least we need to unpack it a bit further. So first we say, well, what does real even mean? Is anything real? Am I real? I mean, if I sit down and think too hard about whether or not I'm real, I conclude that I'm definitely not real. But then I get on with my life anyway. And so then the next question is, does it matter? And I think that it doesn't matter, actually. And that what matters is whether maths is helpful, because we can consider it not to be real. And actually, that could be part of its power. The fact that we've just sort of invented it in our heads, like I said, with the abstract Lego, means that we can just use our imagination and manipulate things in our heads. Now, some people use that to denigrate maths and say, oh, this is all made up, which means it's useless, which I think is kind of funny, because fiction and films and music that's all made up but it enriches us and it can also teach us about reality even if it is made up
1: well let's ask some of the what you call simple questions you say that the simple questions get you digging and thinking about the world in a slightly different way Mm. and lead to a richer understanding i'm gonna just throw these at you and you can help our listeners to sort of think about these questions in slightly different ways so the most basic one then what is a number? yeah,
0: what is a number? And this taxed to mathematicians so much that a couple of hundred years ago, some of them sat down and went, oh dear, we actually don't know what a number is. We'd better sit down and figure this out. And then they started all over again. And that was kind of when mathematics got its foundations from the beginning again, because mathematicians realized they didn't know how to answer that question. And so now we can say, well, how do numbers come about? And it comes from spotting patterns, where you go, if I take one banana and another banana, oh, there's this kind of quantity of bananas. And if I take an apple and another apple, then the same thing happens. And if I take a chair and another chair, then the same thing happens. And so is there something I can say about this so that I don't have to list every object and say that if I take one of them and then another one, there's this quantity, there's a pattern going on. What if I give that a name so that I can refer to it? And that's how counting numbers come up. They come up from seeing an analogy between different situations where you have quantities of things. And then you can push it a bit further and go, well, wait, though, because does this happen with all objects? For example, if I put one color of paint with another color of paint, they mix together and I get one color of paint, I don't get two colors of paint. And if I put a pile of sand on a pile of sand, I get a bigger pile of sand. Or as I saw in a very amusing meme, if I put a lasagna on top of a lasagna, it's just a lasagna. It's just a taller one. An even more delicious lasagna. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so sometimes it doesn't quite work like that. And so then this brings us to another question about whether one plus one really equals two, which is related to what numbers are, because sometimes numbers are describing situations of objects that when you put them together, they don't spontaneously mix up together And so that's a more restrictive context than we might originally think. And so now what we're really saying is not what are numbers, but kind of how do they behave? And at some point, mathematicians realize that it doesn't really matter what numbers are. What matters is how they interact with each other. But actually, that's true in other subjects as well. I think even in medicine, there are some things that we don't understand, but at least if we know how they do behave, then we can operate them. And so I think that the big insight of contemporary mathematics is that it doesn't actually matter what numbers are as much as what they do. And anything that behaves like that, maybe then deserves to count as a number.
1: Okay, well you preempted my next question, which was gonna be, why does one plus one equal two and does it equal to in all cases. But in a sense, 1 plus 1 equals 2 makes sense if you're counting quantities, right? You've talked about, you know, if I have 5 apples and 5 apples, you get 10 apples. So that makes sense, you're counting quantities. But also the numbers aren't just quantities, are they? It's also about sequences, right? The number line is a sequence. So is that a different type of number?
0: That's a good question. So I would say that it's the same kind of number, but we've put it into a context. And I love talking about context because I think that maths is more about what is true in particular worlds and then what can be true in a different world. So one big misconception about maths, I think, is that it's about absolute truth. And I don't think it is about absolute truth. It's about understanding what context things behave in and in what context they behave in some other way. And so when we put numbers on a line, we're just kind of giving them somewhere to live in relation to each other. We're having a better understanding of them because we have put them in relationship with each other. And that is a very profound mathematical thing to do, actually. When we teach children about number lines, it's really profound. And I think that we should draw more attention to that. Well, the number line also helps
1: to understand other types of numbers, right? So if you think about the number line starting at zero, going one, two, three, four, off to infinity, what happens before zero? Well, at some point, you'll learn about negative numbers. And this goes to my next question, which is, why does minus minus one equal one?
0: Oh, yeah. So I love this question because... Sometimes some people say, oh, but it's really obvious. And the thing is that if you think it's really obvious, you're kind of missing something. But the unfortunate thing is that the people who think it's obvious probably get celebrated as being good at maths at school. And the people who think it's baffling then end up thinking that they're bad at maths. But actually it typically isn't really explained why it's true at school. And so I think that being baffled by it is kind of the correct answer. And that thinking it's obvious is really kind of not the correct answer. And so there are many ways to think about negative, negative one. But The way that abstract mathematicians think about it is that the negative of negative one is just whatever you need to add to negative one to get back to zero. And it's a bit like turning a piece of paper over. If you turn a piece of paper over, then what do you need to do to get back to the beginning? Well, you turn it over again. And so if you've turned it over once, then what do you do to get back to the beginning? You turn it over again. But that isn't ever really explained. And it's kind of a shame to me
1: So pluses and minuses, people are almost certainly familiar with. You know, if you add 1 plus 1 equals 2 and, you know, 1 minus 1 is 0 and all of that. But addition and subtraction are related because one is the inverse of the other. And it's the same with multiplication and division. But there's a deeper sort of relationship between them.
0: There is a deeper relationship because multiplication comes from repeated addition. And it doesn't have to come from repeated addition, but that's one way of thinking about it. And what we often do in maths is start with one way of thinking about it and then expand our way of thinking about it to let more concepts in. Because if we think about multiplication as repeated addition, then we get a bit stuck if we're trying to multiply by fraction, for example, because how do you add something two and a half times? That's a bit more peculiar. But if we think about sort of making a grid of things, then we can expand our notion of multiplication to include, say, shapes. Because we can take a circle and multiply it by a straight line by sort of extending the circle in the direction of a straight line for as long as the straight line went along. And if you take a circle and you kind of extend it in the direction of a straight line, you get a cylinder. And that's how multiplication of shapes happens. And that's one important step in the development of maths where we start with a more simple concept and some things we know how to do there. And then we go to a more complicated concept and see if we can replicate the stuff we did before in the more complicated world and so
1: i like the idea of multiplying shapes Mm. it's obvious when you talk about it now but i hadn't ever thought about it you i always thought you multiply numbers together but you multiply shapes can you divide shapes too
0: That's a really good question. And so division is about the inverse of multiplication. And not all multiplication can be undone, right? That's what's really meant by you can't divide by zero. Now, maybe that's another question you were going to pose. We'll come to that, yeah. And I've preempted it. But the reason that you can't, divide by zero isn't that you can't. It's that how would you undo the process of multiplication by zero? Well, multiplication by zero collapses the whole world to zero. And so how do you undo that? You've kind of collapsed too many things. So you can't undo it. And in the book, I think I said it's like making a code where you turn every letter into the letter X. There's no hope of ever undoing that code. No one's ever going to be able to decode your code if you turn every letter into X because you've collapsed everything to a single thing. And that's why you can't undo the process of multiplication by zero. So let's think about whether we could undo the process of multiplication by a shape. Well, if you take a circle and multiply it by a straight line, you get a cylinder? Is there any shape that you could multiply the cylinder by to get it back to being a circle again? It's not clear to me that you could because you would have to kind of collapse it rather than just doing a multiplication. And do you know, I've never thought about this before. It's a great question. I'm going to go away and think about it for the rest of the day now.
1: Okay, well, that's your next PhD paper there in that case. But we talked about zero and we've kind of been avoiding it in the number chat earlier. But zero is a bit strange, isn't it? Um, It's it's not like the other numbers. Mm -hmm. You said we can't divide by zero because there's no inverse to it, which is an interesting way of putting it. But what is it about zero that makes it so strange? And, And before we even get to that, I mean, who came up with the idea of zero?
0: Oh, now you're asking. I'm not a historian of math, so I can never remember this kind of thing. But it took ages, took ages for people to come up with the concept of zero. You'd think
1: it'd be obvious.
0: Well, we think it's obvious, but we're being a bit patronizing (laughs) to past people because it's a thing representing nothing. And I think it's really great to sit down and think about how weird that is especially if we ever are trying to explain maths to small children, because if we have forgotten how weird things are, then it's very hard for us to explain them to children who are finding them weird. And zero is weird because it represents nothing. How do you do that? So I think one story I tell in the book is the day I realized with great glee that I owned three, three three-hole hole punches and two, two two-hole hole punches and one, one one-hole hole punch. And I said this on Twitter and someone said, you also have zero, zero zero-hole hole punches. (laughs) And I thought, this for a second. And I thought, I don't know that that's right, because I think maybe every object I possess is a zero hole hole punch, <laughs> because they all can punch zero holes. And so that's what's weird about zero. A lot of weird things happen when you think about zero. And I had a maths friend recently who told me what I thought was hilarious, and maybe no one else will find this hilarious, but they were playing 20 questions, and they couldn't get it but hours. And they were playing it with another mathematician. And the answer turned out to be the empty set. And the empty set has nothing in it. It's a thing representing nothing. But basically everything that you ask to be true about it will be true. Because you can say, is everything in this set purple? Yes. Is everything in this set a person? Yes. Do all the people in this set like the same things? Yes. And so everything is true because there's nothing there, which is another really weird thing about zero.
1: But that doesn't make sense. How is that true? And if there's nothing in the empty set, then there's no purple things in it. There's no people, right? In but
0: it. every single thing in it is purple.
1: But th- there's nothing in it, though. Th- th- so there's
0: right. <laughs> I have zero elephants in my house, and they are all purple. All zero of them are purple. It's called vacuously satisfied. But could you not also say?
1: There's no elephants in my house, none of them. Are... Oh, yes, it makes sense, <laughs> does it? Okay, that, I, I'm, I'm bamboozled now. So zero is a strange concept, but it's completely necessary. But it came along a lot later than the other numbers. But I was wonder, what did people do before
0: it? You know, how did they conceive of nothingness? Or did they not? Well, it's a good question. I think that they didn't. And that's the thing. You say it's completely necessary. But I wouldn't say it's necessary. I just think that it really, really impedes you if you don't have it. And so it just depends what you're trying to do. If you're trying to do any kind of trade, unless it's a really basic trade. So with really basic trades, you could kind of show someone, I don't know, this is a bit simplistic, but you could show someone a canoe that you've made out of a tree and then you could point to their cow and then you could say, I'll trade you this canoe for this cow. And I think the reason that zero didn't come up is because you're never trying to trade zero things for anything I mean maybe these days people are all the time aren't they but in those days you probably weren't you wouldn't go around with zero things and go hey I'll trade you these zero things for your cow
1: you say that people don't go around wanting to trade zero things but I actually have zero purple elephants here in the studio if you wanted to buy them
0: (laughs) 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 oh well I will absolutely trade them for all of my zero solid gold elephants that I have over here
1: (laughs) okay fantastic We'll be back with Eugenia in just a moment. She'll explain how learning some maths could make us all a bit more empathetic. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Today on Babbage, we're talking to the mathematician and author Eugenia Cheng. Eugenia's been explaining why those people who are cautious about maths should reconsider their views, and why no one should ever feel silly for asking seemingly simple questions. Now, in the book, you talk about how you get satisfaction from mathematics in a way that, for example, people might, you know, bake their own cakes or make their own food, um, even if it's actually easier just to go and buy it. Can you just explain that for people who might find that analogy (laughs) a bit difficult?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, some people don't like baking their own cakes either. But I really like being able to come up with my own explanation for things, or at least understand things. And it comes back to that point about not wanting to just believe other people the fact that i feel like i can understand any maths helps me to believe that i can understand anything and so that if i'm wondering whether something is true or not in the world or is good information or not i like knowing that i can dig it out and this is a bit esoteric because i'm not trying to turn everybody into a research mathematician but i hope to convey how joyful it is that we don't sit around doing maths because it's useful. And I don't sit here doing it because I think I'm going to help someone fly a plane or I'm going to specifically help someone do something. I do think it's useful in the end. But the reason I do research is because it's absolutely gorgeous and glorious and joyful and satisfying. And that is why I will keep doing it. And of course,
1: as you said right at the beginning, it can be useful too. And there's nowhere more useful than math has than in the sciences, in the natural sciences especially. And Eugene Wigner, the physicist, once wrote about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics mm. in the natural sciences. And there's a famous essay that talked about why this mathematics, which is a human construction, as adventurous and all that it is, but it's human construction. Why is it that it can explain theoretical physics and makes predictions and things so well? We still don't really have an answer to that, do we? I mean, it's still something that is kind of a mystery.
0: Yeah, it is a mystery. And I think it's a wonderful mystery. And and trying to answer that question and marvelling at it. And I don't think we should dismiss that kind of question because it is a kind of a mystery. And I think, To me, it is related to the fact that there's a surprising amount of agreement among mathematicians. Maths can make progress in a way that other fields can't, I think, because mathematicians really agree about what is true. Because when someone's proved it, then it's true in maths. And there isn't any arguments about it anymore. And so we have this extraordinary level of agreement. And to people who are skeptical about maths, it can look like it's a conspiracy or that everyone's being brainwashed because in their worlds, there's no other way for everybody to agree with each other about things. And I think that's a real shame that it looks like a conspiracy when really what it is, is that there's a really clear framework and that everyone working in maths is working in the same framework. And that's why we come to the agreement. And that's one of the reasons I would really like maths education to be better for the sake of society. Because I think that if we have too many members of society who are really sceptical about maths and think that it's all been made up in a conspiracy, then we can't convey important ideas about the world. And we've seen, unfortunately, many examples of that recently with the pandemic and with climate change and other things that I won't dare mention.
1: Okay, well let's dig into that a little bit because mathematics's relationship with society is really important and I think people as we've alluded to who don't like mathematics or feel like it's not for them they might get suspicious of people using mathematics to explain the world to them. It's actually dangerous in many respects, mm. isn't it? Uh, when it comes to understanding as you said whether vaccines work or whether climate change exists and all these sorts of things. And I'm not suggesting that people like that are always blaming mathematics for it, but I just wonder is the way that we're taught maths and then how that affects our relationship with it is there something wrong with it in your view
0: Yes, I think there's a lot wrong with it. And I want to reiterate that I'm not blaming the teachers because their hands are really tied by the system that's been imposed on them. But I think one of the big problems is that we focus much too much on the content that we're teaching to people rather than the attitude that we are leaving them with. And I think that too often, it's taught as arbitrary rules that get passed down in a very autocratic way. And I think most people don't like autocracy. Most people don't want to be just told what to do without any reason behind it. And so when maths comes across as being autocratic, then I think it is understandable that people rebel against it and reject it. And I think that the other aspect of this is that instead of focusing on getting people to be able to do maths all the time, there should be a component of getting people to be able to follow it. And for example, when we talk about the very traditional form of education of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Listen to that. For reading and writing, we acknowledge that reading and writing are separate things, that being able to produce writing is a separate skill from being able to understand other people's. But with arithmetic, or if we more broadly say maths, we seem to have conflated the act of doing it with the act of imbibing somebody else's understanding somebody else's and I think that we should separate those out again and acknowledge that even if you can't do it being able to read other people's maths and to follow it is a really important skill.
1: Okay so if there's something you could do to change that there's probably many things that we can think of to improve maths education but just is there a simple thing that can be done to encourage people's interest in it and tamp down any bad ideas or thoughts they might have going forward?
0: Oh, a simple thing. Oh, dear, I was going to say something like abolish all standardized tests. That's a simple
1: thing. There you go.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Well, <laughs> I think doing that would be great because those things just focus on such a narrow view of maths. And it encourages people to do rote learning and just learning algorithms for passing the test and doing well rather than exploring, developing an understanding and appreciation, or just being able to follow what other people do and get a feel for things. And it is kind of slower. It's slower to explore and get a feel for things, but it lasts for longer. And what's the point of rushing towards a high score in those tests if nothing stays with you? And so if we could get rid of that, I think it would really help. What do you think
1: the value of learning about maths is? especially abstract and theoretical maths for the vast majority of people who probably won't go on to do careers in academia or even science or even use it really that much in their daily lives in the abstract ways and you talked about joy and the gorgeousness of it and I get that but I think for everyone else what will understanding some of this abstract maths or the concepts behind them what will it give them in their appreciation and sense for life?
0: I think that abstract maths is actually something we can all use in our daily lives. Because it's about thinking clearly. It's about using our brains well and using our brains logically and being able to understand concepts. And even it's about being able to understand other people. Abstract maths actually helps me empathize with other people and understand their points of view. I hope that everyone is interested in being able to use their brain better in as many different ways as possible. And I'm not saying that abstract maths is the only one. I'm just saying that it is one that is really helpful at giving us a stronger brain and a better way to understand and make sense of the world around us. And I appreciate so much being able to make sense of the world around me. I would like to share that with as many people as possible.
1: When you say it helps you empathize with other people, what do you mean by that?
0: What I mean is that it helps me Understand what other people are thinking from their point of view. I think what often gets in the way of empathy is being so upset by what somebody else thinks that all the emotions get in the way because we so vehemently and viscerally disagree with what they think. But abstract math is about cutting through emotions and following logical arguments step by step, backwards and forwards, back to their own starting points, even if we don't agree with those starting points. Because in a logical argument, we start from somewhere and we don't say that that starting point is true. We just say, okay, if that starting point were true, what would follow from it? And that is how I can understand other people's arguments, even if I completely disagree with them, because I can very calmly, step by step, follow their argument back to their own starting point. And so it turns out that I can always understand what other people. think and why they think it doesn't mean that I think it's valid but I can understand it and I think that if everyone could understand everyone else better and especially the people they disagree with then we could have a much less divisive society and much less divisive arguments and I think that would be a really good step to a better world
1: so mathematics for a more harmonious world that's your slogan
0: no maybe yes (laughs)
1: All right, well, let me ask the final question, which is the same as the first question. So after this
0: long conversation, I still can't work out, is maths real or not? I think it doesn't matter. There's a sense in which it's real and there's a sense in which it isn't. And both of those senses are helpful because the sense in which it's real is that it helps us with real things in the real world. And the sense in which it isn't real is that it lives in our imagination. And that means that it's only limited by our own imagination. And if our imaginations are limitless, then so is our maths.
1: Okay, Eugenia Cheng, thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. and thank you for listening. If you can't get enough of our content, you can read all of our insightful analysis or even listen to the print edition of The Economist like an audiobook, all by subscribing. As a Babbage listener, you can get a 30-day digital subscription for free by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Savage is produced by Kunal Patel and Jason Hoskin, and this week's episode was mixed by James Stickland and Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business, and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations.